your circle well, for you have summoned the lurking transmission. Brad pounded his fists against the dashboard of his old Ford pickup, hard enough to crack the wood grain. He drew his hand back with a small wince of pain. A nasty crack now ran through the faded wood that surrounded his useless radio. I'm gonna fucking kill you, Yancey! He screamed at the empty, dark highway ahead of him, as if Yancey Brown actually had anything to do with the new damage done to Brad's old truck. Fucking kill you, he muttered low this time and gripped the wheel tight. Brad wasn't actually going to kill Yancey. He was going to beat the shit out of him. Brad had ran into Leroy at the Shell station earlier, and Leroy said that he had seen Yancey Brown with a fat wad of cash and a fat sack of weed. You see, both of these things had disappeared from Brad's truck the night before at a party in a cornfield off Highway 111 a party that Yancey Brown had happened to attend. Brad Coley was not the kind of person who took such trespasses lightly. Brad Coley was the kind of guy who was headed to Yancey Brown's house at 80 miles an hour down a dark and curvy highway, with his trusty maglite close at hand, just itching to bean someone. In fact, he already had a vague idea of how it would go down. He would knock on Yancey's door with the maglite behind his back, wait for the door to open, and BAM! Knock that fucker out cold. Find his money and weed, take a quick look around to see if there was anything else worth taking, and then go home and get stoned. No skin off his ass. Brad lit a cigarette and stuck the lighter back into the dash. The only thing that works in this place is shit, he said to himself bringing his eyes back up to look at the road that he was flying over. The truck eased out into the left lane as he took a hard curve to the right, and suddenly something leaped out onto the left side of the road from the scrub. It was a huge, pure white rabbit, and it sat on the highway's edge. Brad jerked the steering wheel to the left, intending to hit the big critter with his front left tire, but the rabbit jumped once more, this time out into the center of the road. Brad felt the animal thump as it disappeared under the truck. <laughs> I still got you, you ugly fucker, he said, spreading ashes all over his seat. Brad felt a great sense of triumph, not just because he loved running over animals, but because he felt like he had ridden the world of a monster of some sort. That damn rabbit must have weighed 30 pounds and stood at least three feet tall, but that was the only thing that Brad had found so monstrous about the animal. The rabbit had sneered at Brad from the edge of the road, an ugly, evil, knowing sneer. It made him feel nuts to think about it, but he didn't doubt what he saw. He wasn't the kind of guy. The rabbit was a monster, 
and he knew it. It was something the world was better off without, and the fact that he had turned it into mere roadkill made him feel great. The feeling empowered him. Brad reached out and grabbed the maglite lying in the passenger seat and squeezed it tightly, his knuckles standing out as white as the rabbit's fur. Your ass is mine, Yancey, he said to himself, then dropped the maglite back onto the seat. He threw his cigarette out the window and lit another one. As he popped the lighter back into the dashboard, he heard a strange noise coming from his glove box. A sort of knocking or scratching could be heard faintly over the rumbling of the engine, and it was getting louder by the second. Brad threw his cigarette out and leaned closer to his glove box. The strange sound was loud now, quite audible in the confines of the truck. It sounded like something was chewing and scratching its way up through the truck. It sounded like... There ain't no way! Brad screamed and flung open the glove box. The white rabbit's monstrous face leered at him from inside. Brad noticed the rabbit's teeth as it squeezed its fat body through the hole it had chewed. It had way too many teeth, gleaming in the moonlight as if they were made of stainless steel. All of them were pointy needle-sharp incisors. The rabbit gnashed these teeth at Brad and finally worked its way out onto the passenger seat. Brad's eyes went wide as he saw that what he mistook as rabbit ears on top of this thing's head were actually more like short, prehensile tails or stubby tentacles covered in fine white fur. That must have been when Brad fainted. He woke up slowly, aware of some pain in his right hand that brought him reluctantly out of a wicked nightmare about a... a rabbit? Damn, rabbit was huge... Had teeth like. He mumbled incoherently as he opened his eyes. His hand was on fire. He was in his truck, and it was upside down, and his hand was on fire, and the truck was on fire. Gotta shit! He screamed and yanked his hand from the flames it lay in. He beat his hand on his pants until it stopped burning. It hurt like a bastard. The sensation that this had been a dream was gone from his mind instantly when he took in his surroundings. The entire front end of the old Ford was on fire, and some of the fire had spread through the busted windshield to the inside roof where Brad lay crumpled. The truck was full of acrid smoke that burned his eyes and lungs. He began to crawl out of the driver's side window, then remembered the bunny and looked around for his maglite. Ain't no bunny, no sir. That was a rabbit, he said to himself, not really knowing why. He found the maglite, but as soon as he picked it up, he had to throw it back where it was. The maglite was hot, and it scalded his already badly burned hand. Choking on the smoke, he crawled out of the truck. Reaching fresh air, Brad's head cleared a little. It was dark as hell wherever he was, except for the glow of the fire. There was no moon, and as a matter of fact... There were no stars either. Then, he noticed the couch and the television. Holy shit. He was in someone's house. Someone had an overturned and flamed 1978 Ford F-150 in their living room. Not to mention their rabbit. He cast his eyes around the room quick, looking for the monster. There was no sign of it and Brad wasn't going to wait for it to show again. He knew it was in here somewhere. 
He could feel it in a way he couldn't understand and didn't want to. Fuck this, he said and rose to his feet. His head swam with blackness and he fell back to the floor. He reached up and touched his head and found that it was bleeding badly. What if that rabbit is creeping in on the owners of this house right now? He thought. If they didn't wake up when this truck hit their house, that rabbit's got him for sure. Chomp, chomp. He thought about the thing's teeth, like stainless steel needles. He stood up slowly this time, bracing himself against the wall. He surveyed the living room again and saw that it was good and burning now. The whole west end of the room was ablaze. One end of the couch had already caught fire. Brad looked to his right and saw what looked to him like the front door. It was just beyond a staircase that led to a second story. <clears throat> Gotta get out of here, he mumbled and stepped toward the front door holding his bleeding head. Bradley, you need to come up here and see this. A strange voice spoke to Brad from behind. He snapped his head around and looked up the dark staircase behind him where the fire had not yet spread. That voice had filled him with immense dread, and although he never even noticed, he evacuated his bowels where he stood. Who said that? The voice from the dark staircase spoke again. You know who I am, Bradley. Now come up here and see this. The voice reminded him of his mother, who was the only person who ever called him Bradley, but it also reminded him of something slithering down a dark corridor in an ancient crypt. He turned for the door again. Now you stop where you are, Bradley. The voice boomed like God. I could have sucked your pitiful guts if I wanted, but I didn't. So you owe me, you see. So get up here now. Brad whimpered and began to walk up the staircase slowly. That's a good boy, that's a noise chap, the voice called from the darkness at the top of the stairs. Besides, we can't have you wandering around unattended, me boyo. That bump on the head is pretty nasty, but man, it looks like you clipped an artery there in your leg. I give you, um, five minutes, tops. Then you'll be dead as your grandma Ruth. Uh-huh. Brad looked down at his leg, and in the flickering firelight, he could see an eight-inch curved piece of steering wheel protruding from his inner thigh. Blood was gushing around it at an alarming rate. He kept moving. He topped the last few stairs and entered total darkness. He felt his way down a short hall and into the room at the hall's end. He couldn't see anything. But the smell of blood was very powerful, as well as some other stench. Turn on the light, Bradley. Brad turned on the light. The rabbit thing sat perched on the queen-sized bed between the remains of two elderly people. It had disemboweled them both and was just swallowing the last one of the geriatric's guts. The smell was horrendous. Brad fell on the floor and deposited his dinner at the foot of the bed. He rolled over onto his back, struggling to breathe. 
He looked down at his leg and saw that the blood was coming much slower now, spurting softly in time with the ragged beating of his heart. He realized he was getting cold. Oh, don't give up yet, Bradley. I want to ask you something before you go, the rabbit said as it leaned over the edge of the bed. It lowered its grinning face down right in front of Brad's clouding eyes. It was definitely not a rabbit. Its strange ears wavered over its head like antennae. Its eyes were a shade of purple so dark that they were almost black. The eyes were huge and gleaming and looked more like the eyes of a bird than a rabbit. Tell me, Bradley, what do you see? The creature asked. Its metallic teeth were writhing and twisting around each other like sharpened steel worms. Brad wheezed and tried to roll away from the creature's nightmare face, but his body would not obey him. Tell me, Bradley. You see it, do you not? You see what awaits you beyond the expiration of your flesh. In the gleam of the dark creature's eyes, Brad could see something. Ah, ah, no. Yes, you see it and see it well. No. Yes, it is truth. And that truth is ever so much simpler than what you thought, eh? It's, it's not, it's not. Oh, but it is, Bradley. It is. No. Oh, God. Indeed. Brad began crying and shaking his head weakly from side to side. No. 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 The creature sat upright on the bed and twitched its strange ear-like appendages as flames began pouring into the room from the hallway. The heat from the flames sent a ripple across the white fur of its chest and blinked its huge dark eyes. Lovely, the creature said, staring into the flames. No, 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 Brad whispered where he lay on the floor. Yes, Bradley. No, do not fight. The truth is absolute. The truth is simple. The truth is dark and expansive. And it is hungry. I have shown you... I will show you all. As Brad choked on his last shallow breaths, the bed caught fire. The window exploded outward with the force of the heat, and the rush of air that came in after turned the room into a raging inferno. The rabbit thing sat in the blaze, unharmed, and turned its head toward the open window. It could hear the approaching sound of sirens, the sound of the rescuers of this world. It grinned and waited for more truth-seekers to arrive.
Hello ladies, Horace Keeley from Deep Sunshine Brands, here to talk to you about Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags. Got a dirty little secret? A forbidden fruit that does not need to fully ripen under the sun. Try Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags. Weighted with lead and constructed of high-grade fiber coated in polypropylene, these bags are tough enough to handle the job and hefty enough to sink out of sight. Twice the trouble? A double order, you say? Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags are made roomy enough for two. A troublesome household pet? Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags can accommodate most good-sized companions in need of relocation. Ladies, don't worry about the mess. Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags are 100% watertight, able to contain the sloppiest of disposals without spilling a single drop on your well-maintained floors. Oh, but maybe you have a bigger John, I mean job to handle. Husband always making a mess of things. Maybe he needs to be tidy. Try our extra large sized Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags. Just make sure you've got a strong back when dealing with this one. Or maybe a friend to help. And speaking of friends, ladies, if you have a partner in crime, say, friend who has a similar mess to clean up, Mr. Sandman's Betty Bye Bags are now on sale, two for one, at a Woolworth's or Macy's near you. Throw your troubles away with friends, out with the old and... I'm sitting on the wet curb outside of AJ's, bathing in blue lights. Cops are all over out here on the sidewalk and inside the joint. Those damn blue lights mess with my head. Kinda zone me out. That's all right though. I'm done talking to the cops. Made my statement inside where the whole thing went down. What happened? The cop had asked me with fear in his eyes. He didn't want to know what had happened. Hell no, not at all. Nervous, the cop's eyes darted from body to body strewn about AJ's. The one on the pool table, the one under the pool table, the one that was sort of crammed into the pinball machine, the three or four guys at the end of the bar whose remains occupied space on both sides of the bar. The cop seemed to have forgotten what he had asked me. He chewed his lower lip and looked to be making a mental body count. Officer? I inquired. I'm sorry. I wish we could do this somewhere else, but, he said. That's all right, I said, and looked around the place. Despite all the blood and corpses, I wasn't frightened anymore. I saw another cop interviewing Jackson over by the front door. Jackson looked twitchy, like he had seen a ghost. He looked dangerous, actually. I wondered what Jackson was telling the cop. I wondered how much he had seen. I guess he and I were the only ones. I just want to get this over with and get out of here, I told the cop. I understand, the cop said. He did not. Well... There were four of them, with some kind of automatic weapons, I said. Machine guns, he asked. Yeah, I grinned a little. Something funny? He raised an eyebrow. No. My lips tightened, and the grin disappeared. One woman with two revolvers as big as Buick's? Yeah, this pig would have had me escorted off the premises by a couple of guys in white suits in half an hour if I'd have told him that. So they came in really fast and just started shooting up the place, I told him. Just started shooting? They didn't say anything? He asked. Nope, they just came in and started spraying people. I jumped behind the bar. He looked me in the eye for a moment. And these machine guns, were they big? Against the shoulder or handheld like pistols? Small, like Uzis or something, I said. Mm-hmm. Could you describe these men? He asked. Yeah, short, 
and Hispanic. Mexicans? he asked. I don't know. They could have been Spanish or Cuban. But definitely Hispanic, he asked. Yes, I answered. The cop pulled a small notepad from his coat and jotted something down. I couldn't see what. And they also had knives or swords or something, he asked, casting a glance at the lower portions of four men in a puddle of gore at the end of the bar. Did I tell him about the other guy who had been at the end of the bar? The guy in the big black cloak and the wide-brimmed hat that kept his face masked by shadow? The guy who, just as that woman entered the bar, had jumped up and drawn a slender, curved sword that was roughly seven feet in length and cut poor Steve and his friends from Florida in half as he did so? Did I mention that guy or the woman? No, I didn't. I guess, I said with a shrug, I didn't see anything after I jumped behind the bar. It all took about 30 seconds, a minute tops, and then they were gone. The cop turned away from me and surveyed the mess in the bar once more. He seemed to be in deep thought. Other cops were coming in now, men and women with latex gloves on, carrying baggies and cameras. I thought of the woman with the revolvers, who came in out of the night blazing like the bush that was God, her fire-orange hair spraying out onto her long black coat like flowing magma, and her eyes burning with the same intensity. I thought of the deafening roar as her guns began to deal death to all in her way, the slugs tearing through the poor fucks that found themselves between her and her enemy. I thought of the flashes of fire from the barrels of her guns and the blood spraying crimson, intensifying the inferno that was her. I've never seen anything burn with color like that. Mr. Jones? The look on the cop's face had told me that this must have been the fourth or fifth time he had tried to get my attention. Sorry, it's just... I started, but the cop showed me his palm. It's all right. Let's get you out of here. You're a very lucky man, Mr. Jones. The cop smiled and fished a card out of his pocket. Here's my card. Call us if you think of anything you may have forgotten to tell us, he said. Then he turned and motioned for me to follow him out to the street. You got a ride, he asked. Yeah, I answered. I lied. I don't have a ride, which is why I'm sitting on this wet curb in front of AJ's, watching cops scurry around like ants while I bathe in the blue lights. I look out into the street as cars go by, their tires sending fine sprays of mist up from the street, their headlights projecting solid beams of light into the drizzle in the air. The faces in the cars turn to try and see what happened, to have something to talk about. They'll never know like I do. They have never seen her. Raw, elemental, blazing beauty. I wonder if she got her man, the one in the cloak and the wide-brimmed hat. I didn't see his body or that sword of his anywhere inside AJ's, and the cop never mentioned anything about it. I bet she got him, blasted that weirdo straight to hell, then disposed of him when she left. I wish I had been able to watch her leave, but I could only afford that one glimpse before I got my ass behind that bar. If only I would have had the balls to peek out again after the shooting stopped. The blaring of a horn snatches me out of the cloud of my thoughts. I look up from the curb to see a flat black 64 and a half Mustang idling as smooth as a milkshake. It's parked on the other side of the street and the goddess of fire behind the wheel smiles and asks me if I need a ride. My eyes move from her to the two foot length of leather scabbard that I can see through the back window, then back to her again. I cross the street and jump in the passenger seat without saying a word.
Heather Melton of the Lurking News here to report that something is wrong with our pets. We are getting reports that animal companions everywhere are acting strange. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless, and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and I shall cast myself from this garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think of my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess though never fully realize why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know. For my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire, which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, for there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and homogeneity of the land oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to be almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet, 
As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unexpected volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might. Nor were there any sea fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory for an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still travelled towards the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon that had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent, which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon, whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscence of paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the greater slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light has yet penetrated. 
All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the worksmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols, such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size, were an array of bas reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of Dore. I think that these were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men. Though the creatures were shewn, the sporting like fishes in waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seem to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background for some of the creatures were shewn in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gourds of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then I suddenly saw it, with only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface.
The thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast polyphemous-like and loathsome. It darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent to the sloping cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm some time after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug was given only transient surces and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I aim to end it all, having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fevers, I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likeness on the submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind." Of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall find me. God, that hand, the window. God, the window!
So I swear my liquor will get you turned the fuck up. Made right here in Mocha, Georgia. South Swill has that secret ingredient that will turn a party into a motherfucking massacre. You won't remember shit, and you'll be the only one that leaves the party alive. But that's cool. You'll go home covered in blood that's not yours, and you'll be so full that you won't eat for days, but you'll be thirsty as hell. Thirsty for South Swill, my liquor, available at your local liquor store. Repeat, no animals are to be trusted. Especially not household pets. If your cat or dog is watching you right now, that is a sign they could be compromised. If your cat or dog smiles at you, get away from them immediately. Preya stood on the bank of the icy stream and paused to catch her breath. She did not think she would catch him, but she had to keep trying. He was her da, and he had always taken care of her. The tracks he was leaving in the snow would not last. The tiny spots of blood here and there among the footprints would not last either. Not once another layer of snow had fallen across the hills. She had awoken in the early morning dark to the smell of lemonwood and myrrh. There was a small iron bowl near the fireplace with ashes in it, and her da was gone. She had run outside and found the tracks leaving from their cabin. She threw on a cloak and followed the tracks, and now just as the sun rose, she stood at the stream where her and her da caught salamanders. The edges of the stream were icy and frozen, but the middle was still flowing. Across the stream, on the other side, she could see the footprints continuing onward. She took a step back and jumped over the stream, landing with a crunch in the snow on the other side. She walked for another hour or so, deeper into the hill country that climbed steeply into the surrounding mountains. She was so cold, and every step was grinding the freezing pain in her feet further into her bones. Her ankles were starting to stiffen. She paused to look around her. There was nothing but rolling hills behind her, and the looming pines in the mountains ahead of her. The forest gathered around the mountains, shrouding them with towering evergreens. She saw the footprints leading into the forest, and knew that she was going in there. Back behind her, beyond the low, rolling hills, she could see the smoke of the chimneys of Lover's Hill. In the distance like that, the town looked so tiny, but so warm. She pulled her hat down over her stinging ears, and trudged onward into the forest. Stepping into the forest, into the embrace of the trees, felt dangerous. She wanted to be back in the open hills where she could see for hundreds of yards around her. She gripped the handle of the long knife stuck in her belt and continued to crunch through the snow, her eyes darting all around her. She did not know what she was afraid of or why exactly she should be fearful at all, but she could not keep her eyes from wildly bouncing about the trees. She forced her attention directly ahead of her and stopped where she was. There was an empty pond just there ahead of her, and in the middle of the clearing created by the pond, she saw something in the snow. She dashed across the empty pond as fast as she could and stood over the object in the snow. Looking down at the thing, 
Her knees gave way and she fell onto the snow. It was Tani's favorite toy, a brightly painted wooden fish with cloth fins that flapped back and forth. Her father's footprints ended here in the middle of the empty pond, but he was not here. She cast her eyes all about, looking for more tracks in the snow, but there were none. She looked up into the trees and saw nothing there either. She looked up at the gray sky and saw nothing but the dark clouds slowly churning their way across the world. She picked up the toy and clutched it to her chest. The wooden toy was warm, like it had been sitting in the summer sun. She thought of beautiful little Tanny's face, the way she looked before the sickness had got to her. Tears welled up into Preya's eyes and burst the sunlight around her into fragmented bars and streaks. Deep, uncontrollable wails and sobs began to well out of her, and she poured streaming tears onto the snow. She cried for ages, long enough for the sun to shift its position in the sky. Finally, she pulled herself back together. She realized that she was soaking wet from the snow, and her teeth were chattering. She stood up, brushing snow from her cloak with one hand, while the other held Tani's toy. The toy was ice cold now. She dropped the toy back onto the snow and began to trudge back toward the cabin. Her cabin now. Winter always seemed long in the valley, but Preya was sure this one would be the longest yet.
Listen to report that something is watching us through the eyes of our animal companions. Something that watches and smiles. Maybe if we ignore it, it'll go away. The Lurking Transmission is created, produced, directed, and engineered by Evan Dean Shelton. The first tale, White Rabbit, was written by Evan Dean Shelton and performed by J.M. Torres. The first song was Passages by Gall. The second tale was Burning the Night, written and performed by Evan Dean Shelton. The second song was Egoism by Nahamath. The third tale, Dagon, was written by H.P. Lovecraft and performed by J.M. Torres. The third song was A Titan Approaches by Bound for the Ground. The fourth tale, The Longest Winter, was written by Evan Dean Shelton and performed by Francine Padilla. This story is from the Lover's Hill series. You can find the rest of the Lover's Hill series at loversill.com. The fourth song was Great Tyrant, Great Oppressor by Mar. The voice of the lurking news is Heather Milton. The voice of the lurking credits is me, Jennifer Robertson. Everything you hear within the space of the lurking transmission is protected by copyright law, but we here at the lurking transmission are outlaws and black magicians. Therefore, we don't rely on the law. If you fuck with us, we'll fuck with you. While we have your attention, dear receiver, we ask that you do us a favor, and if you enjoy the transmission, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and help us spread the word. Until next time, dear receiver, look. We know your mom told you that your dad just left all those years ago, but we're just saying, there's a reason she doesn't let you in the attic. And that smell up there in the summer? Yeah. Stay tuned, dear receiver, for the lurking transmission will return.